Rick Madison, Rick and Friends, thanks for listening. This one is going to be a good one because uh, I've I've known this fellow for a lot of years and I've tried to get him on the podcast. He finally relented. Here he is. Um, Rick Pasuto, welcome to the big show. Morning. So, Rick, uh, you and I met way back in 2003, and uh, it was heady times for our fine little place, uh, Kelowna, where it seemed like everything was on fire. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Let's just talk a bit about uh, your background in in just fire management and and that kind of thing. Okay. Um, I'm a registered forest professional. I've been involved in forestry for... I guess since 86, so 30, 30 some years anyways, 35 some years. Um, and through that whole process, I've always been connected to the wildfire, wildfire management end of things um, as a junior forester right through and then right to our, our current position now where, where I'm a primary wildfire contractor and do a fair bit of wildfire mitigation in the valley, have been for quite a while and involved in uh, suppression and I guess larger scale planning uh, when I was back in in with the licensees and the bigger forestry stuff. So uh, let's uh, let's go back to that 2003. Mm-hmm. And uh, was there a point when you thought, you know what, I don't think we can hold this this beast back? Like, is it it, it seemed like they were going to make a stand at KLO uh, way back in 2003. Was that was did you ever feel like? you know, we were just going to lose, we were going to lose the, the town? Um, you know what, the 03 fire was, uh, if, we're, if we're going back to there, I guess a couple of things. One, as a, a registered forest professional, I'm speaking on my own personal. I just have to be cautious not to cross lines, I guess. I don't speak on behalf of uh, a professional association. This is personal. Um, no, the, the 03 fire, it, it took five days from the ignition point down Okanagan Mountain Park as it wandered across slope after slope and neighborhood after neighborhood before it got towards my my neighborhood. I never, like from day one actually, I did, uh, I went out with a friend out on the lake. We actually looked at the ignition spot when the fire was burning and what was being done, which was uh, nothing. Um, You know, I didn't even think twice about it because it was so far away. And then as I watched it uh, day after day burn its way through from the park to Lakeshore, Lakeshore to Kettle Valley, Kettle Valley to Crawford, I get kind of sequentially moved across. Um, yeah, things started to be more of a concern, I guess, as it went through. I would have never, I would have lost a bet if somebody told me um, the day that fire started that it would end up literally 300 yards from my house, you know, five days later. And, and it seemed like... Uh as it went along, I think you were correct. Is a lot of people just thought it was going to be a spark. It would be, it would be quenched. Like you would basically have it suppressed in no time, and there wouldn't be an issue. But it seemed like, um, I'm not going to say lackadaisical, but that's the word that comes to mind. Of of just, you know, it it'll burn out. It's a rocky terrain, so it doesn't have much fuel. But I mean, if I remember, it was just tinder dry, and there was a lot of fuel on the on the forest floor. Yeah, we had, actually it was a dry year. Um, we hadn't had rain and I, I don't remember the number of days, but it was significant that we had a dry spell. Um, the biggest issue with that fire, and it, you know, in my mind, it was a predictable fire in the sense that it, it ran mostly afternoons and evenings, which was a little bit off course for the average fire, but that's when the winds would pick it up and, and push it. But it sat down, it sat down every day. It would run and it would sit down. So. In firefighting, those are the opportunities you have to capitalize on. And so there was a number of days when the fire would take its run and then it would sit down. And then if you jumped on it, uh, that would have been the opportunity to, to settle it down. It had a predictable course, uh, just the way it was moving to the north. It was the southern winds pushing it. And it was actually quite predictable as far as the time of day and the movement of the fire. It was aggressive fire. There's no doubt about it. It did firestorm across when it came, but it always sat down. And there were those short windows of opportunity where um, it would have been nice to have seen some action taken when the fire sat down to suppress it. But I'm still not sure where everybody was because that's literally right when it got to my doorstep. It was, where is everybody? Mm-hmm. And uh, anyways, five days later, we were the guys doing it. And... 
So uh, let's talk a bit about that. So you you saw this progression of the fire and you decided, okay, you know, we have to do something because we have properties to protect up in June Springs and, and really and really try and knock it down a bit. And as you said, it, it sat down during the day. So what kinds of, of tools were at your disposal to kind of push it back from your properties? Um, <clears throat> mine were pretty minimal. Um, you know, like that's, and I can't, I think it was, you know, day two or three, I think by the time it hit Lakeshore, when it, when it started to burn the Lakeshore corridor, I'm thinking maybe we better start prepping up here. I've always been um, conscious of fire safety because I've been in fire management for my whole career and my property is relatively fire safe, but I still did have uh, forested lands all around me. And uh, 2003 is when they created the Myra Bellevue Park Corridor. So the lands surrounding me on the park side were uh, untreated lands per se. Um, but we started our fire prep as far as starting to scarify ground, starting to um, uh, buckle up the buildings, covering you know uh, the openings, the barns and stuff with the hay storage. You had to basically do what we could do to prepare for the firestorm if it did get to us and uh, we hadn't anticipated but we we were as prepped as we could be and it was mostly manual stuff just going around um you know removing all your flammables from the buildings and sealing up uh, opportunity areas for sparks to get into buildings scarifying the pastures because again it was a super dry year and uh, we weren't very green as far as the the grasses and such and uh, at that time, my property had limited water supply. I was basically on a, a well system up there. Um, anyways, we did everything we could do to prepare for it, which was, uh, like say, just all handwork and prep work. I had a small dozer there for scaring up, pa- scarifying the pastures and such. But um, that was based on dealing with uh, a reasonable fire too, like a rank, um, you know, two or three, possibly a four fire. The Okanagan Mountain Park fire when it ramped up like it ran at all these other ranks at certain parts of the day but basically when it was at its peak it was a firestorm it was a class six fire and you can't stop those fires so i almost felt uh its own it started its own weather pattern it did yeah when it when it's a level six is that what happens yeah Yeah, absolutely yeah the they turn into their own beast and um Oh, three, this was the, the first big fire, provincially high-profile fire, because it was coming into a, a town, um, you know, a populated and high-profile town. These mm-hmm. fires may have been existing in the past to a certain degree, but they weren't in anybody's backyard. And this, this one, this is a kickoff to, you know, uh, everybody in B.C. realizing that we've got wildfire problem. This was it, oh, three. So that, now, when when we were in the... I, in the throes of it, it seemed like um, it was getting national attention. And do you think, and we'll go back to the step-by-step because step, this is all amazing stuff, but did it seem like it? we suddenly became, like there was now, okay, we really have to start looking at fire management. We have to look at uh, the insurance costs. We have, like it, it seemed like it blew everything yep. wide apart. Was that the, the yeah, episode? Yeah, for sure. 03, um I'm quite certain this is the first high-profile interface fire that uh, we had in definitely in BC, probably in Canada, um, just because of the house, the losses of homes, uh, and, and that's basically how everybody gauges fires these days. There's horrendous volumes of timber that get burnt every year, and nobody really blinks an eye, but you lose a couple houses, and then all of a sudden somebody's paying attention. And this is the first one. I think there's 211 some houses that burnt by the time we got to my place. Yeah, and it and it, it seemed like, um, and you would know more about this, but it it was shooting ahead. Like, mm-hmm. was it pine cones or something? No, that... it, it sparks. It will. It, it's um, it's it's a spark. The spark line, and it will actually, depending how far and how close per se. It'll shoot anything from, you know, pine cones, needles, and large spark, uh, volumes of spark to literally uh, small logs and trees if you're close enough to the fire. Stuff's exploding, right? You think this super heat that's coming in to these trees that have pitch and moisture in them, 
and they they explode is what they do in the fire some of them burn if the fire but you know we're talking uh the peak heat of the fire so when it when it was rolling um nothing can stop a firestorm so it's uh all firefighting is based on opportunity and you have to basically uh decide when that opportunity presents itself and it might not be at uh, nine in the morning when the crew somebody's crew wants to start versus three in the morning when there's an opportunity or four in the morning when there's an opportunity so um, I think that was one of the lessons that was learned um, well there's a ton of lessons that were learned and I guess if we hadn't had that fire we probably to this day would have lost a lot more structures from the fires that we've had since then but we still have a long ways to go. So let's talk about the uh, the lessons learned because uh, you know we we obviously got to a point where I, I think a lot of people woke up to the fact that interface fires you know we we don't want them obviously we we have to really start dealing with them proactively and I think that's where you what you're all about yep, is, is being proactive about yep. you know let's let's really start thinking about a plan versus reactive which is what. 2003 was it seemed yeah and rea- you know and two and like say oh three out of fairness to the system nobody had dealt with this before so oh three was the wake-up call it was like hey you know uh, fire can be dangerous in these subdivisions these neighborhoods and uh, the municipalities and the and the government um, provincial and federal weren't geared up for this and that was the uh, that was a kickoff where they said holy smokes like you know, everybody, we were, to be honest, BC was, and still is probably recognized as one of the most um, qualified provinces or regions in the world for wildfire suppression. Like we do have um, fantastic wildfire suppression. And uh, that's where I cut my teeth was initial attack and moved through the system. And that's what we did for you know years and years as soon as there was a lightning strike we were on it we hammered it we shut it down and we thought we were doing a good thing in some cases we were but in a lot of cases we weren't because we just kept building up fire fuels that would have burnt um and in the past the uh the the mythology i guess and the thought process was always put out fires and that's changed um now slowly forever it's taken to get to this point where now actually the government's starting to, to uh, consider lighting fires. And we've seen it finally this year in the Okanagan with some of the prescribed burning. And, um, you know, we've pushed for prescribed burning in the past for years and years and always had it shut down. We used to actually prescribe burn back in the 80s when I first started firefighting. And then politically it, was, uh, it wasn't acceptable. And it was all based primarily on smoke, right? Smoke is what causes all the issues with fire. If we could have fire without smoke, we would be doing fantastic things. And even now, you know, we deal with that in town here. Um, the, uh, the air quality issues, venting issues, those things, we didn't even know what those were, you know, back in the eighties. Now they're right up front here. Like we get notices, everybody, you know, somebody coughs, they can look up and see what the particular matter is for the day and, and whether they should go somewhere else for the week. <laughs> So it, it seems like we're not, so let's, let's talk a bit about uh, forest management in the way of like uh, actually felling trees and, and, you know, using the timber, because it seems like that would be a, a great resource for BC and for mills and everything else. Why, why is it prescribed burning versus just, you well, know, harvesting? I guess, you know, the, a couple of things um for sure doing wildfire mitigation with the intent to utilize is is number one but having said that primary wildfire mitigation treatments usually deal with the understory the branches pruning and the the scrubbier layers of the forest and you try to retain your your good timber your good wood is what you try to leave and take out all the understory so commercially, um, in our experience, we've very seldom, if ever, recover, have anything what would be considered recoverable timber coming out of a treatment. You will get some, but it's primarily firewood, a little bit of saw log, but nothing that would ever carry the cost. So wildfire mitigation in general runs at a negative cost. And so the only way to reverse that or to try to break even is to start cutting uh, bigger trees, healthier trees. Then you go to kind of a select logging or a patch cut system, 
and those systems do get used more in the nor- northern co- northern uh, cities and countries around, or not countries, cities, but uh, northern regions. Um, they're uh, more accepted there. Whereas here, you know, a feller buncher shows up on the city limits, and and you got protest groups, you got people right away, right? We have a lot of observers that um, have opinions whenever stuff happens, so we don't have the opportunity to do that. The um, as far as going back to the treatment end of it, the treatments do produce uh, a lot of uh, wood waste, wood fiber, and uh, you've got a number of options. You know, one is chipping them, which is kind of a small scale process. The other is grinding them for wood waste, and then the third is usually fire, like to burn them off site. The fire is the cheapest by far. Um, if you're given a budget and a, an objective, if you can use fire, you'll do 10 times more ground coverage than you will if you have to use alternative disposal systems. Uh, unfortunately for municipalities and private land, we don't get um, subsidies to do any of this type of work. And that's what's really discouraging because the Crown has started to do that with different programs. They provide subsidies to go in and and because it's not cost effective to to utilize the fiber it uh it either would get left but in this case the government would pay say to grind it and haul it away in exchange for not burning and um and that's fine but they don't offer that to the private side so as a private landowner in the okanagan and in most private municipalities uh, if you can't use fire, you've got another negative cost to the treatment is to get rid of the wood waste. And and it's let's talk a bit about that interface side because you just touched on it with uh, with the observers, and we know what the observers are. Um, but you know, with so many fires that seem to you know every year it seems like we get more and more fires that are affecting structures and that kind of thing. It seems like you know there's a better way forward, which is to to kind of create a fire break around around a city. But you still have people that protest that and say, "No, don't touch my trees. I want to look at them." And yeah, it's education. Um, it's risk management and education. So <clears throat> the the bulk of everything when it comes to resource based activities, be it uh, forestry, wildfire stuff, mining. Um, it's education. So if people get educated, um, they need the information, right? And our government does nothing to, or very little to promote that information. If you're living in an interface community, which the Okanagan, the whole valley is an interface community, um, and most of these cities are now because we've had forced ingrowth on most of them, it, it would be nice if the government ramped it up and just explained the process. And I think people by default kind of understand it, but they don't, they don't realize the implications of not doing uh, wildfire mitigation. And the comments that I've made you know, to other uh, landowners primarily is, um, you know, the, the, you get the best case, worst case scenario. When people are giving you grief over uh, going in and, and modifying the forest, and we try to mimic kind of what Mother Nature would have done on a, on a smaller scale burn, like a class one, two type burn where the lower fuels get burnt out and the big trees survive, the little, little ones get burnt off. Um, it does modify the forest, different biodiversity, different everything. When you look at a untouched forest, it has a certain gleam to it. And then you look at a treated forest and then it's like, well, it looks semi-sanitized, but it does recover, it fills back in and there's different uh, tools, I guess, to keep it from looking too sanitized, like too systematic and and like kind of your European forest where it's just a bunch of fence posts that are all look like they've been planted in the, you know, in a, like an orchard. Mm-hmm. Um, anyways, those tools exist and we try to utilize those in, in mitigation. But um, yeah, I guess like back to where I was going with that one was the option of looking at a, a disturbed site or semi-disturbed mitigated site is to look at a burnt site. So you'd look at it and say, you know what, you know, you do this level of modification, we can protect it from most fires, not all fires, because certain fires will still burn through even mitigated stands. Like if you get into the big class five, class six fires, but that's where fire breaks come into place. And I say there's tools and, and, uh, 
um, strategies, I guess, for all of these type of things where you could mitigate. And this we do this on a small scale with larger acreages where we mitigate the immediate interface areas and then we kind of get in, in behind the ridges and stuff and we'll put in fire breaks where we do aggressive treatments and create an actual break where fire has to go to the ground. And that's the key to, to managing fire is put it on the ground. Now, you talked about how big the fire break has to be, and it's, it's a lot smaller than I thought it yep. was. Yeah, so it's all proportional to the landscape that you're managing. So when you're dealing with, you know, small acreages, 10 acre, 150 acre, 100 acre, like we're on a 1,600 acre piece right now, and we've created fire breaks, aggressive fire breaks that are still forested, forested regions. They look great. But, you know, we've got extremely wide tree spacing in there, and it's designed so that um, suppression activity can be very effective and primarily air suppression where if a fire did come up the slopes, these, these fire breaks are on uh, ridge lines, and if they laid a, a swath of retardant over the top of that ridge line, it's super effective. Fire hits that and it is done. It's on the ground and, and you carry on. Um, the key to all wildfire mitigation is is to minimize the amount of fire that can get into the crown. And if fire can't travel through the crown, then you stand a very good chance of, of suppressing it and managing it. So the crown is the trees? Or? Yeah, like the top of the trees. Okay. Yeah, so the trees, you can run fire, and that's where prescribed burning comes in as a tool. Because you can run fire in a treated stand, you can run fire through the base of the forest. And if you've pruned it properly and, and disconnected the fire fuels from the crown of the trees, the fire can run through and it won't bother the trees. And especially in the Okanagan here, we've got uh, all our, our, our tree species are designed for fire. They're all thick bark species. Uh, Ponderosa pine and Douglas fir, they're both thick bark and they're designed to, to withstand uh, a certain level of heat and burning. Mm. And that's how mother nature sets it up, right? Like it's all part of the big picture. We've got this ponderosa pine bunch grass ecosystem, and it's an ecosystem that historically would have burnt every five to ten years. If we weren't here, there, this valley would have burnt numerous times over, and it would have cleaned everything up, and you'd have you know less big, huge, or less trees, but the ones that were there would be all big, huge, healthy trees because they'd have all this nutrient base from, from the fire, their thick bark. So the, the bigger they are, the thicker the bark, the more heat they can put up with. Um, you look at the old pictures, you know, back, uh, you know, the orchard pictures and stuff, and you look in the background and you see these big open hillsides, ponderosa pine hillsides with grasslands and big healthy trees all over there. And the, the, um, all the understory is gone, right? Those were burning back then. So it seems like the uh, it, it's part of the reset cycle for Mother Nature, which yep. is every five, ten years, we, we really do need this fire. And, and I think a lot of people don't quite conceptualize the fact that this is actually good for the forest, like for the ecosystem, for the biology, yep. everything. Oh, absolutely. So, you know, again, we're being specific to kind of the Okanagan. The whole province is covered with what's called biogeoclimatic zones. So the, it's different timber, timber types and, and uh, um, biodiversity at all different levels. But specific to the Okanagan, we're basically ponderosa pine bunch grass and then uh, interior Douglas fir are two primaries. And both those uh, ecosystems are fire-friendly ecosystems. So... Um, yeah, we've, you know, like everything from fish and water and air, humans have uh, destroyed everything that Mother Nature has built, right? And so now we're trying to fix it, and we're doing that on all facets, and fire mitigation is the forest part of it. Um, fire is a fantastic uh, ecosystem re restore button. There's a species of seeds and vegetation that stay dormant waiting for fire, and there still is now. Like, there's... There's, uh, you know, different grasses and, and shrubs layers where the seeds are still in, in, the, in the forest floor and they won't release until they've had a certain temperature or a certain environment. And um, that's Mother Nature, right? She just puts things there. I, I read somewhere that sap uh, gets released from a certain type of tree every so often and it's almost like a, a, a flammable substance that actually helps create that fire. 
Like it, um, it helps burn. Well, you get you get uh, tree pitch um, in the different species. Most like fir, there are certain species that'll pitch out more than others, and yeah, that would increase the uh, ignition or lower the ignition point for the tree, increase the flammability of the tree. Um, that's all part of the big cycle, though, where you get insects going through and they're killing trees. And the idea is that a lightning strike hits those dead trees, it burns them, it hits the green trees, it stops. And that's how it used to work. But it doesn't work like that anymore because, well, for, you know, we do have this climate cycle thing that's really changed the whole program. And that more so in the last, you know, 10 years, um, it's it's unprecedented in that sense and that's also feeding the intensity of a lot of these fires the basic concept though of all wildfire mitigation and, and just wildfire management is the same from 100 years ago like it's very it's a very predictable beast and um it'll you know it'll burn if the fuels are there to burn and if you don't manage it um then you pay the price and that's what we've been doing over and over and over again so why can't we just hire you to look after the whole <laughs> Kelowna here and keep us safe well you know what uh, again specific to the Okanagan um, contrary to what most residents think the Okanagan's actually in really good shape from a wildfire perspective and I can say that because we've got uh, I don't know 17 or 20 years under our belt work in this country and we've, we've treated um, thousands of hectares between municipalities, private land, and government lands. And um, there's been good efforts in doing that. The government stuff's been the absolute slowest. Like even the 03 fire, we, we impl implemented treatments uh, over the last couple of years. It took 17 years from <laughs> when the fire you know, like the, the film and report, like basically right after the fires, they always do big investigations and studies and come up with recommendations. And the recommendations are always the same, more wildfire mitigation, you know, more timely. Well, it took 17 years before the first dollar hit the ground after the 03 fire. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty, you know, so what could have happened in 17 years? A hell of a lot. But anyways, we did get some monies and there were some actions taken, but it's... Um, it's government. <laughs> okay, listen, we're gonna we'll be back with more Rick Pasuto because this is a lot of fun. Um, do you have print needs for your business? The D six is in D, is in Dan D six Print Studio on Lucky Road has large format printers to service your every need. Uh, want more local talk? Then you're in the right place. From six a.m. to midnight every day, we talk about local issues with local people about the stuff that matters. All right, back in a bit with more Rick. Okay, so let's talk a bit about this uh, this issue, which is you know fire management, fire mitigation. The two thousand three fires gave us, um, I mean, a lot of perspective. We learned. It sounds like we learned a lot. There's still a lot to be done. Um, wh what are we missing so far, Rick? Though, like, it, it seems like we're not quite there yet. We still get you know, these, these, uh, uncontrollable fires and, and a lot of people like myself who had their, their house burned down. Um, you know, whenever I see a plume of smoke, I still get antsy and I, I still think of that 2003 fires. Like I, I think a lot of people have that PTSD from 2003. Yep, absolutely. Um, and, and with it, such a big visible event, is there enough being done or, or we still have a lot more to go? You know, I think we're just on the tip of having things done, to be honest. Um, the government, <clears throat> we've got a reactive government um, that uh, operates on fear factor. So they uh, seem to, to or have decided that it's easier to scare the shit out of people and uh, hold everybody at ransom as far as watching assets get disposed rather than uh, taking proactive measures to deal with it. And when I look at every year the budget that gets spent on wildfire suppression and then the budget that gets spent on wildfire mitigation, well, it's a decimal point compared to what they just blew off fighting fire that could have, you know, in some cases, most cases could have probably been dealt with on a different uh, end. Um, no, our wildfire program, we should have dedicated full-time wildfire crews, whether the government wants to operate them or not or private that are that are are functional in in bc if nothing else like bc is definitely um the forefront for forested provinces and 
but yeah, everything is, you know, it runs on government budgets rather than on uh, uh, proactive uh, actions, I guess. And there's, there's enough work, there's enough uh, real estate in this province that there could be a whole division of wildfire guys that basically have a full-time job, whether it's private or government, um, looking after our forest. So I was traveling through uh, South and North Dakota this, this last summer, and uh, I was amazed at the the, the forest, like uh, spacing, and it looked like the the forest floor was was rather sanitary. And it and it seemed to me like I don't know if they have a, a dedicated plan like like you're talking about, or if that's just fluke. But it seemed like they just don't have that density that like whenever I see a forest that has that fuel on the floor and you know a dry conditions exist, it just makes me antsy. Yeah. Well, you know, the, the issue with fire is it's you've got from kind of July to September is when everybody thinks of fire. Outside of that, nobody thinks of fire. And um, unless we have, as bad as it sounds, unless we have good fires, like forest fires that scare the shit out of everybody, at least every year or two, um, nobody would pay attention. And... Um, we've gone through that uh, in the past when we've had quiet fire seasons here then all the programs seem to uh, idle away and there's not much going on and then you have these massive fire seasons where the losses are horrendous and then all of a sudden you know a couple hundred million dollars shows up for wildfire and then they do a bit of reactive work with it um, and it's mostly to appease the public uh, all that money like it should be a constant stream it should be a program that runs non-stop you look at California now, I think they're saying that they basically are in fire season 12 months of the year. And they've got Cal Fire, which is a state of the art. It's like an army of firefighters with firefighting equipment. And uh, they're dedicated to, you know, wildfire. Whether they're doing management or suppression, you're, they're doing something, right? But it seems like they've they've realized there there's a cost, and and, and it's a really easy math problem. Oh, super easy. Yeah, you don't have to be an accountant for this one. But it seems like okay, uh, this is horrible for the environment to have these huge out of control wildfires. Um, there's the insurance cost, of course, because insurance companies are carry a pretty big stick these days. Mm-hmm. And, and so you have this added cost, plus, of course, the reactionary of hiring people from Ontario and beyond just to, to keep the fire at bay. And you, the loss of assets as far as the timber is concerned. Like, it seems like it's overwhelmingly common sense to deal with this every single season. But you're right. It, it seems like we're caught in this circle of... Okay, we're gonna throw a bunch of money at it because this last season was actually not bad. No, the last two in the Okanagan have been good. Yeah. And and so as a result of that, I'm sure the government programs kind of dried up a bit because yeah. well, we, no one's talking about it. So except on the Rick and Friends show, <laughs> yeah. but but it seems like we're not talking about it. So that means we'll just push it into the background again. Yeah, the squeaky wheel gets the grease, right? So if elections were held and if there was something going on in July and August when a city was on fire and a politician said, uh, you know what, one of my, my platforms is going to be to get a, a, a solid wildfire program in order and protect these communities, he'd get voted in, definitely by the people that had houses at risk. But it never seems to happen. It, it's short-winded. Like the, in my mind, and I'm on the tail end of my career, but the government has always controlled all this. The Ministry of Environment, uh, Ministry of Protection, Ministry of Forests. And um, there, when I started, there was a, 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 a noticeable amount of private sector involved in wildfire suppression and wildfire management. That's actually faded down, unfortunately, and they've forced most of the private sector out of wildfire suppression. And there used to be contract crews and stuff. There's a, a transition occurring now where they're basically taking the First Nations and offering that to them um, to, I guess, to get them involved, even though they've always been involved. But um, the government still has some level of control, even with the First Nations, but it also gives them an avenue to point a finger, is my thought. And uh, hopefully that I'm wrong, but... Um, you know, because that's what the government does when things don't go good. They have to find a reason why it didn't. And um, the private sector guys are all gone. Like when I grew up, there used to be um, uh, private uh, unit crews, private uh, 
uh, independent contractor uh, suppression crews and they've all but vaporized because it just economically they can't survive and then the government creates an environment where it's not uh, feasible to be in that position there was uh, i'm thinking about i think it was maybe two years ago where there was a fire breaking out on uh, the west Kelowna side and there was a bunch of heavy machines like private contractors that said we, we will go in and protect our assets which yeah. is that timber um you know just just let us through and there was kind of a, a back and forth with the government agency to say no no you're not insured and we can't let you close to this fire or whatever and and it and there was some pushback from the public saying listen they could have helped and you didn't allow that to happen and now here we are is that does that help or hinder that kind of government relations? You know what? Uh, old school, those machines would have put the fire out, and it would have been all. It would have been a conversation to be had later. Uh, nowadays, because of liability, because um, of po- politics, um, there's a lot of issues that come into play. And yeah, like even now, to to legally be on a fire, you're supposed to have you know some level of fire training with an S100 and depending on where you sit in the ranking order, all contractors um, have to be. The bulk of the fires, if they're on Crown land, is is government, so they control what happens there. Um, technically, if you had a piece of heavy machinery there, there was a fire and you took action on it without permission and you weren't certified per se to do it, you could get sued or have issues. And that's what the environment that's been created from our government. Um, and you know what, it makes sense, of course, that guys are, have some level of qualification to take action. But having said that, a small fire with the right tools, men or equipment can be put out for the most part quite safely. And initial attack is what wildfire management is all about. The quicker uh, that you put it out, the less of an issue it is. And then once it gets to a certain scale, it, it changes from um, you know a little forest fire to a full-blown project fire. So logistically, it's a tough one. Um, if you're on private property and you had machines sitting there or you had somebody uh, that could take action, it'd be, it'd be a no-brainer, right? It's just because of, of the society we've created now where if somebody did get hurt, then the government technically would be liable and then it's who authorized what and then the finger pointing starts and the insurance companies come in. So yeah, it's, uh, we've created again our own uh, beast in that, in that form. Um, you know, myself, I've already uh, d- done it a number of times, driving through the province, seeing a fire, a small fire, jumped out of my truck and engaged. And whether um, it was a farmer that I helped out or an IA crew finally showed up, um, and, you know, and then I walked away from it and it was all good and, and that was it. Technically, you know, I guess I could get in trouble if I, uh, you know, when I did the one with the farmer, he was very uh, appreciative of it. And we literally put it out in the uh, when we were sitting on the tailgate having a beer, the IA crews came and it's like, well, go mop her up, you know, but that made the difference between a, a good conversation and a good reason to have a beer versus a, a big wildfire that would have taken out his house. So that's a great story because I, I, I do think, you know, it makes sense to my brain to hit something very quickly and, and really try and, again, mitigate it, suppress it, and, and just get rid of it. With with the Mars bomber kind of out of action or grounded, is that because it, it seemed like the Mars bomber could carry the most load? And, and to me, just, you know, someone who doesn't have that training, it seemed like it could hit hit a fire the hardest with the, the volume and capacity of water it can carry. Is that a, is that a problem? Should we be building more Mars bombers or um, is it just no, not No, so effective? the Mars, the Mars was, um, and you know what, there, there were three of them when they started out. Again, private sector uh, equipment. And um, back in the old days when the, where they evolved from actually FIFT, which was the forest industry fighter tankers, um, the forest companies actually uh, were the forefront in having these to protect forests, their tenure, because the, uh, even you know back in the 40s, 50s, 60s, timber was still getting burnt, and um, the licensees had seemed to have a more vested interest in the government in protecting it. So the tankers were built. Um, 
you know, again, that's a long conversation there, but it is a private sector or was private sector equipment. Uh, it, it's effective in certain uh, applications, but not all applications. And it is old technology. Having said that, we did have the Mars actually on the old three fire. It took forever. It was like pulling teeth to get it because I knew it was it was available, and we didn't get it till the fire had actually burnt through town and was up in Myra. And when it showed up, you know, it did a phenomenal job because we had the right terrain, we had the water sources, etc. Having said that, uh, technology and now the equipment that's available with all these modified planes and and aircraft. Uh, the Mars is, you know, would, would have still been effective, but we do have other more expensive modern tools, I guess, of which the government has full control over. Um, so, you know, as again, it's a catch-22, right? There's no motivation for any private sector to step into this game. And um, like everything, if private sector was involved more, there'd be more efficient actions on these fires but we rely on the government by default and and in some cases when because we don't have a choice so if we had just for fun a change of government and there was perhaps do you think a a change of government policy would perhaps bring about new innovation new technology new ways to fight fires if if there was actually an appetite for that, yep. where it's economically viable it for is, yep. private sector? Absolutely. Well, economically viable, the one thing that nobody ever talks about is the volume of timber that gets burnt. So you're talking commercial forests um, that are being vaporized. So we've got the cost that gets presented at the end of fire season. They say, okay, we spent $450 million, which is probably not the right number anyways. It's as close as they can come. But um, but no, that doesn't tack in um, the value of the timber that was lost. So aside from burning houses and burning communities, BC is a forest province. And there is, well, we're going to see it this year again. The mills, there'll be more mills shut down because we're out of wood. And we're out of wood because a lot of it went up in smoke. So your recovery window... Uh, post-fire is very short um, before the wood becomes um, unsalvageable, un- unusable, and that you know varies on the intensity of the fire. But uh, it's endless. Again, even last year, the northern country burnt more than here. But um, we, I've had this discussion with associates a number of times where you think, again, a super simple tool when we've got these fires is that they literally should be processing paperwork for the recovery and the salvage logging the day the fire starts or the day, you know, day two, because if you don't recover that wood, it go, it's gone. And, um, and, you know, we're paying for it. The tax payers pay for it. Like our stumpage, that, all the stumpage money that goes up in smoke every year is staggering. And it makes the, uh, you know, the $400 million suppression budget pretty small. And uh, there's mills that'll shut down. So you look at a mill, they always say, oh, yeah, 243 guys out of work. Well, that's just the mill. You got all the support equipment, the fuel guys, uh, the grease and oil guys, the mechanics, the mill rates. Like there's just, the spinoff is horrendous. And there's not a lot of people, like now we're a big city, but... All these communities, you know, north of Kamloops, there's very few that aren't touched by the forest sector. And it seems like, again, it goes back to a balance sheet. Uh, we make way more money if we're if we're being proactive. We plan it and we start, you know, engaging with the forest and, and really trying to figure out, okay, what, again, on an orderly basis instead of, holy crap this thing's going up and like it seems like we are reactionary and and there doesn't seem to be a set plan of going wouldn't it be better math if we figure this out if we harvested but is it the environmental groups that have have really got the government um you know what it's it's everything it's everything um but it's still primarily it's government there's always going to be a group that uh has a, a an interest and there's always values that are going to be sacrificed to, you know, you have to give give one to save the other. 
So it's a, it's a balancing act like with wildfire and we're a bit all over the board, but like say with, um, you know, post-fire recovery, it's very seldom, if ever, that you'll ever actually harvest the whole burn area just because of topography and access and, and, and timber quality. So there are only target areas that you can get. But having said that, I drive through a good section of this province every year and I look at, you know, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of cubic meters of wood that would have been salvageable that are, you know, dead sticks sticking up. And this is the stuff you can see from the, the highway. We have no concept or the average person in the city has no concept of the magnitude of some of the fires that have occurred in the last couple of years where you can fly from Williams Lake to the ocean on burnt wood. And people, you know, they don't know that. And the government doesn't want them to know that because it's like, why didn't somebody look after that? And, you know, in those corridors, like the First Nations, they pay the price for that too. Um, And, you know, respectfully so. Like they've lost, you know, what they consider their lands. We've lost what we consider our lands. And yet everybody lost and nobody gets anything back out of it. So... it's shocking that this isn't a bigger item on the news uh, every well, single day. It's all controlled. Yeah. It's all edited. Even now, like you go to a typical fire and uh, there's, you know, the old three versions to every story. And that's on every high profile fire that's occurred. And you can go to the ranching community in the Caribou. You can go to Paxton Valley. You can go to people that were in the old three fire. Uh, what actually happened, what gets reported and uh, discussed are, in most cases, two different things. And uh, they're very heavily edited and controlled by the government, the information in and the information out. And, uh, you know, that's not a shock. It was probably my biggest learning curve was the power of the government when, when I dealt with the old 3 stuff. But uh, that still goes on. At Paxton Valley, I have close friends there that had, had significant losses. And when they were telling me the stories of what was going on, I said, oh, my God, <laughs> I, I was standing in those boots 17 years ago or, you know, 20 some years ago. Yeah. Nothing's changed. You know, they again watched fires move across, you know, mountains for days and days and days. And uh, and, yeah, eventually watched their houses burn. So will you get in trouble for talking to us today? Not for anything I've said. No. Okay. No. And I, you know, I. And I was, before, when we had talked earlier, I was um, reviewing in my mind, I guess, what I could say. Mm-hmm. Um, I ended up in a toe-to-toe situation with the government at, after the 03 fire. So um, I just have to be cautious, I guess, in the sense um, I have no issue telling the truth, but the truth <laughs> isn't always wanted, what people want to hear. Having said that... Um, I am still under a, a part of my you know, professional association, so I have to be careful that I don't cross lines there. That's why I say this is personal more. Having said that, a lot of what I'm talking about, this, you know, that's just straight forestry, like the wildfire stuff. That's just good stuff. Yeah. It, it seems like there's, you know, it, it's too bad somebody with, with your pedigree or your, your background wouldn't take a higher role in government just to say, we're sitting on probably one of our most precious resources for BC. And it seems like there just seems to be a blind eye, very reactionary. It's almost like they're shocked and amazed we're surrounded by forest at times from, from Victoria. Like it, it does seem to me like that where it doesn't really get on the agenda for the government. It's more of a, you know, if, if you don't talk about it, it's, it's not real. Yet in the Okanagan, it's it's part of our summer. Like it, it is truly part of our yeah. summer. It's what sells the valley. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like the um, the trail thing, the hiking, the you know, and that's one thing that's been good. Both the municipalities here have been extremely proactive in in acquiring funds to do uh, municipal lands. And like I said, we've been involved in a lot of that, and it's great to see. Like a lot of these parks, um, you know, regional district, city of Kelowna, city of West Kelowna, are generally all treated parks. And most of the high-profile areas uh, are treated, and then they've done some joint venture with the Ministry of Forests on the uh, interface areas. There's always more that can be done, but that's why I say Kelowna, of all places, is one of the probably safest interface because it's a high-profile community. And there have been, you know, millions of dollars spent in interface, which is great. 
and still continue to be. It's actually a hardcore policy with the city now with development that interface activities occur, um, you know, usually prior to sign off or some level of commitment to ensure that it happens. So that part's good. Plus, we're also on a you know a flyway where we've got aircraft over top of these valleys. So the the uh, likelihood of fires getting extremely out of control should be lower than they are. Like we still had a couple good fires. Having said that, some of the decisions made with some of the fires uh, in the past, uh, just the past couple of years in Summerland and. Um, they did let some of those fires burn, and they did that on purpose, and it was good that they did. Uh, it's just all risk management, right? Somebody has to decide how long, how, how big we're going to let it get and where can we cut it off and what's our weather forecast type thing. Is this going to run for you know the rest of the year till the snow comes, if it comes, when it comes type thing. Right. So they were doing prescribed burns this year earlier um, in Peachland area, which is great. And that's the one plus I believe the First Nations were involved on that because they actually hold more clout when it comes to uh, force management than, than uh, general forestry type people do. And if they um, help and assist to get fire on the ground, then good for them. When I flew over, uh, uh, I can't remember where I was flying from, but I, I flew over the West Kelowna side and it there's just huge swaths of forest. And that that's... To me, uh, that seems like our biggest exposure point is right there. Is that true, or, or is that? Um, well, primarily our fires, our, our worst fires, it's the winds, the southern winds that push the fires in the valley. Um, we've, um, you know, the harvesting has been fairly aggressive in the valley, so they, they're not allowed to go cut everything. So there will be a lot of uh, untouched forests. And for the most part, I think um, our access to forest uh, are pretty good as far as just from the road systems and, and such. So they, they just, you know, you'd never get to the level, like if you're flying in looking at these mountaintops, like you'd never be treating to that level of treatment. The key is to, to focus the money on, on what's considered the high-risk areas. So you're going to pick the areas where the public is going and uh, pick your heavy fuel loads that would feed into a corridor. And like say the Okanagan is kind of predictable because most of our nasty fires have always been blown like the southern winds push them up. So if you've got your your southern uh, uh, areas treated, if fire gets into them, at least you can deal with it. Uh, you know, the Okanagan, again, it's I, I don't think in our lifetime, in my lifetime, that uh, we'll ever see any like super nasty fires. Uh, there are some areas that still like out Joe Rich and towards Big White that and they are are doing some activities there. But again, it's like, you know, if you had to make a decision and say, well, we'll spend a million dollars there this year and a million next year, or let's just spend a hundred million dollars, treat all these corridors and be done with it. And then we don't have to worry about it. You know, that um, makes a lot of sense, so Rick. Well, because you know they're going to spend half a billion dollars putting out fires. <laughs> having said that, we've got you know the uh, the resources are all there. It's just a matter of having the the desire to put it together. But yeah, your comment, which is when I think about it, is it is kind of ridiculous that our forests aren't they should you know in my mind anyway should be number one. But everybody here lo loves to hike in trees. It's water quality issues. It's air quality issues. Everything ties into the forest. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you should be looking after your forest. Listen, I, I could talk to you all day, and I, I would love to uh, bring you back because I think the more we talk about it, the more perspectives, the more information. And, uh, you know, to have a, a fire master here is pretty cool. <laughs> well, tail end of the fire master. <laughs> Thanks so much, Rick Pasuto, and uh, we'll see you again soon. Thanks again. Thanks.